Turn to Matthew chapter 24. I want to start things out today with Jesus Christ's Olivet Discourse. We've talked about it before. It's His preaching about the end times. It's a map of the tribulation period. You see it in Matthew 24. You see it in Luke 21. It's in the Gospel of Mark as well. Luke 21 includes the church age in that map, whereas Matthew focuses mainly on the tribulation. Jesus Christ talks about the tribulation of those days. He talks about the seal judgments. He talks about the martyrdom of those that will live and follow the Lord in those days. He talks about many false prophets will rise and deceive many. Verse 12, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. You see, in the days of tribulation, if you give your heart to Christ, you're going to pay for it with your life. And the fruit of true salvation in those days is those that will endure to the end and not recant their faith, even at the point of the knife or the guillotine or whatever method may be used. That's what it means to endure to the end in that context. But the truth of the matter is a true believer will endure to the end. If you're a true believer, you will endure to the end. There's no such thing as a genuine follower of Christ that does not endure to the end. Those that don't endure are like dogs that go back to their own vomit. Or a pig that goes back to the mud wallowing in the mire. You know, these people that make these professions of faith and they have these emotional uh, experiences and these t shed their tears and their crocodile tears... And things look okay for a few days or whatever, and then they go right back to the sin over and over and over that kept them in bondage. The Bible says that is like a dog going back and eating its own puke. Genuine believers experience victory over sin. doesn't mean they don't stumble or fall prey to temptation, but there is victory that's evident, and there's a growing closer to the Lord, and there's an endurance to the end. So really... Just like in the tribulation, he that endures to the end will be saved, even today, he that endures to the end will be saved. Because the true salvation endures to the end. The parable of the sower. It's the good seed that brought forth fruit that represents genuine believers. The seed that fell by the wayside, those that mock the gospel, aren't. that isn't salvation. The seeds that fell on rocky ground and couldn't get deep root, that's not genuine salvation. Those are people that have experiences and look that way for a bit. The seeds that fell on thorny ground that, that grow, but then they don't last because the world or the weeds choke them out. That's the, the people who make these professions and then they look good for a time, but then the cares of this world choke them out. That's not genuine salvation. Genuine salvation is seed that falls on good ground. The seed is the Word of God. And on the good ground, it takes root, it sprouts, it grows, and it bears fruit. And that's what God does in the life of people. And He keeps them, not only saves them, He keeps them saved. And an example of that is the fruit we see in the correspondence I read to you earlier today. But anyway, the verse I want to look at, not 13, there's an important truth there, but verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. So Jesus tells us that there's something that must happen before the end comes. There's many things that must happen 
But this is very pointed in terms of the gospel message. And this was spoken in a day when Jesus had 12 followers, when the gospel message in terms of His Messiahship had not traveled much beyond the borders of ancient Palestine. Jesus said that the message He was preaching to His disciples would be preached in all the world to all nations as a witness. Then the end would come. And this is all in the context of the disciples asking Jesus what would be the sign of His coming and His kingdom. And He said, this gospel must go out and be preached before My kingdom comes. His kingdom comes with His second coming. So I want you to keep this in mind that something must happen before the coming of Christ. Many people look at this verse and apply it to the church and would say it's the church as we are today that is going to fulfill this sign. We will take the gospel to the ends of the earth and then Jesus will come back. So maybe when you go out tomorrow, I've heard this analogy used before, maybe when you go out tomorrow, if you hand out a tract, that'll be the last person to hear the gospel and Jesus will come back. As if Jesus' coming is dependent upon what we do. I believe that's taking such a verse out of context when you consider what we learn in Revelation chapter 7 about those 144,000 witnesses. I believe the context of Matthew 4 is the end of time. Jesus is speaking to the Jews, speaking about the suffering that awaits the people of Israel and the Gospel that will go forth. We've already read about Joel and how it talks about the witnesses God will pour His Spirit out upon. I believe the fulfillment of Matthew 24.14 will be during the tribulation when those sealed witnesses we've been talking about go forth and do their job. You see, the church starts the job of taking the Gospel to the ends of the world. The Jewish witnesses, after the rapture of the church, will finish that job. And that's what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 7. And I want to just give you that as a backdrop to what we're going to get into now with verse 9. The first eight verses of 7 are the Jewish witnesses. We've talked all about that. I don't want to get into that anymore. The last verses, verses 9 through 17 of chapter 7, deal with the fruit of their ministry. An uncountable Gentile multitude. We talked a little bit about that last week and I prefaced it by going to some verses in Jeremiah that the proof of true prophets is that the people who hear their message repent and turn from their sin. These witnesses are true preachers. And the proof is that an innumerable Gentile multitude repents and comes to God. And then I asked you, do you want solid teachers? Do you want bold pastors in your life? Well, if you want these and not false teachers, Jeremiah also says you need to repent of your sin and turn from the things that are uh, tearing you down and affecting your relationship with the Lord in your life. False teachers are judgment from God. But the 144,000 witnesses of Revelation 7 are true prophets and preachers, and it is by these that a Gentile revival or awakening will take place. And it is by these that Matthew 24.14 will be fulfilled. Notice, if you've got your outline, we are at the last page, the Gentile multitude, Revelation 7.9-17. Notice in verses 9-10, through 10, we have Gentiles of all nations. Not just a few nations, not just America. 
Gentiles of all nations. After this, so this is after John saw the witnesses sealed, he immediately sees this multitude, which tells us the multitude is tied to the witnesses. What do witnesses do? They give testimony. Testimony is preaching. So these witnesses are sealed to give testimony. What happens? John then sees this multitude. After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So we have Gentiles of all nations. Jewish witnesses that preach the testimony of God. Jewish missionaries whose fruit is not platforms, but people. And these people aren't a specific people group that they fear a burden to go to. They are Gentiles of all nations. You know, God may call us and give us a special emotion or a special passion for certain peoples. I know this very well. Nepali-speaking peoples hold a special place in my heart. For Ricky, Jewish people hold a special place in his heart. And it may be the same for you. But if you're not willing to share the Gospel with people of any nation, any skin color, any background, then your heart's not right with God. I don't care about the passion and the burden on your heart. If you're not willing to step out of a people group focus and focus on all nations, if you call yourself a Christian and you won't share the Gospel with a black man because you don't like the color of his skin, then I don't know what your definition of a Christian is, but it's not a biblical definition. And you're facing hellfire and brimstone if you don't repent. If you're unwilling to share the Gospel with somebody because they look different or they, they're a Hindu or a Muslim, or you don't like what Muslims are doing all over the world so you wouldn't dare take the time to share the Gospel with Him, then your heart is not right with the Lord. God does give us burdens for peoples and those drive us to seek out those peoples, just as God does for me with the Nepali speakers. But you better believe that even in the context of taking the Gospel to Nepalis, God has given multiple opportunities to share the Gospel with other peoples. European tourists, Jewish or Israeli backpackers, people from India and Bhutan and Bangladesh. And that is the way it should be in our lives. These Jewish witnesses demonstrate that they're willing to take the Gospel to all nations. And that should be our desire. May it never stop with just a burden for a single person. Gentiles of all nations. These Gentiles are before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and they have palms in their hands. What did the people of Jerusalem say to Jesus when they held palms in their hands as He rode in on a donkey? Hosanna! Blessed is He that cometh in the name of the Lord! Those Jewish people didn't mean it because less than a week later that same crowd was saying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! His blood be upon us and our children! The sad thing is Jesus came on a colt and His own people waved palm branches and cried Hosanna. It wasn't genuine. It'll be Gentiles that do that before the Lamb and mean it. The Gentiles with these palms do what the fake people of Jerusalem played games doing in Jesus' day. Jesus told, or the Bible said to the Jewish people, 
And it warned them of the days when they would mock their Messiah and reject God, and God would provoke them to jealousy with other nations. And that's exactly what this Gentile multitude exists to do. Provoke Israel to jealousy. So she will recognize her Messiah. White robes, which is the righteousness of the saints. These Gentiles have the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Palms in their hands, showing their love and faithfulness and loyalty to the Lamb of God. And they cried with a loud voice, Salvation to our God which sits upon the throne. Acknowledging that salvation is from God and acknowledging that God rules and reigns. And acknowledging that the Lamb is God. Three things that are acknowledged here in verse 10 that many so-called Christians have trouble with today. Number one, that salvation is only in God, the Creator. It's only in God of the Bible. So many so-called Christians today have a hard time with that. Number two, God sits on the throne and governs in the affairs of men and is sovereign. They acknowledge that here. These aren't people that grew up in seminaries and churches. These are Gentiles saved out of remote nations that have probably never heard the clear gospel prior to the rapture of the church. And we'll talk more about that later. But they acknowledge salvation to our God, salvation's from God, that He sits upon the throne, He governs. That's something a lot of Christians have trouble with and want to try to govern things themselves. And finally, unto the Lamb. The same praise they offer to God, they offer to the Lamb, acknowledging that Jesus Christ was more than just a Lamb slain. He is God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Man, there's a whole message that can be preached on verse 10 there. Praise God for that testimony in heaven. Gentiles of all nations, look at verses 11 and 12. The praise of others. I think there's some important truths here. Verse 11, And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. See, we're right back here in the throne room that was in heaven. The place John was caught up to at the beginning of chapter 4. Remember that? John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and he heard a voice in heaven and a door opened and said, Come up here. It was a picture of the rapture took place at the end of the church age as revealed in the seven letters. And then John was in the throne room. And then what did John see? He saw angels. He saw the four beasts, which were the cherubims before the throne. He saw 24 elders, which were clothed in white, and I told you represented the saved of all periods of time, redeemed men out of all periods, 12 uh, for the twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament saint, twelve for the twelve apostles of the Lamb and the church. So these elders represented the church that was in heaven at that moment because they began to sing to the Lamb, Thou hast redeemed us out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. So we're back in that same throne room and with the same caricatures. But this time John sees a Gentile multitude that's different from the multitude connected with chapter 4, for which the elders praise God using the first person pronoun. Are you guys following me? They stood before the throne and fell on their faces and worshipped God and said, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. So we see these same characters from chapters 4 and 5 Worshipping God just like they did in chapters 4 and 5. 
In fact, let's go back to chapter 5, verse 13. Or I'm sorry, 5, verses 11 and 12. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So we've got the angels, the beast, and the elders, and the elders which represent the church. It makes it a multitude of all nations, tongues, tribes, and peoples. They're before the throne, and they say with a loud voice, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now compare that with the same people praising the same Lamb, the same God, in verse 12 of chapter 7. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. In chapter 7, we have an added element in their praise. The added element is one of thanksgiving. The blessing, the honor, and the might was given to God or ascribed to Him and the Lamb in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Here we have an element of thanksgiving that is added by these same characters. Thanksgiving for what? It's obvious. Thanksgiving for that Gentile multitude. Thanksgiving for those that are being saved out of the tribulation. For those who are paying for it with their lives and are now standing before God clothed in white with palms in their hands. You know, it reminds me of a passage that Paul writes in Philippians. You know, when we hear about people getting saved, or we hear about people going out and sharing the Gospel, it ought to give us joy. It ought to make us feel exactly like what these people in the throne room of God are feeling and worshiping here in chapter 7. It ought to make us want to praise God. It ought to make us want to thank God. How is it that when we go out to share the Gospel, many times Matthew's been there, Ricky's been there, Daniel's been there, I've been there. How is it that when a so-called Christian passes by and I offer him or her a gospel tract, they get angry and say, I'm already saved, I don't need that. How is that even possible if the Spirit lives within your life? You see, here in Revelation 7, when saved people are confronted with additionally saved people, they rejoice and thank God and praise Him. How is it so different here in America? There's never been a single time, I don't think, and Ricky can correct me if I'm wrong, there's never been a single encounter that I've had with a Christian person preaching the Gospel boldly outside this country when they've reacted like that. It's always, man, I am thankful. Praise God you're out here. I'm a Christian too. 100% of the time in Nepal. 100% of the time in India. I think it's 100% of the time in South America. I can't remember. Not enough to remember. Maybe not in Europe. But only here in America does the Christian get mad when he sees someone boldly preaching the Gospel. Not the church in heaven. Not these creatures in heaven that see from above this Gentile multitude that comes to Christ and is now gathered there. Notice the praise of others. They give praise to God when others are engaged in Gospel ministry and when other people get saved. You know, there are people out here that do preach the Gospel and sometimes they do it for the wrong reasons. Sometimes they do it to get back at some other Christian that for whatever reason they're jealous about. 
Sometimes they go out and preach the gospel because of envy and strife. And their motives aren't correct. But yet the gospel is preached. Turn to Philippians. This is a little bit of a side note, but it reminded me of this passage as I read this chapter in Revelation. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Paul was in prison when he wrote the Philippian epistle. And the theme of the Philippian epistle is that Christians need to live a life of joy. And they need to have a life of rejoicing. He wrote this when he was sitting in prison. And many had forsaken him. And then Paul began to remember that there were others out there doing the gospel ministry that did it hoping to make trouble for him. Because there were jealousies about his authority, jealousies about his calling, and about things he had done in the ministry, and about rebukes he had issued forth to those that needed to be rebuked. But in thinking of these things in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this, verse 15. First he says in verse 14, Many of the brethren in the Lord have waxed confident by my bonds, and now are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, he was saying, look, I'm in prison, and because of this, there are brethren out there that have seen this, and have become more bold, and are preaching the gospel without fear. So he's praising God, in a sense, because he's sitting in prison. But then look at verse 15, But some indeed preach Christ, of, even of envy and strife. Some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. In other words, there were people out there, he said, preaching Christ. They weren't doing it with sincerity. They just did it to make Paul's life more difficult. To cause problems for Paul. Or to get back at Paul. Verse 17, But others of love, knowing that I am sent, set for the defense of the Gospel, what then? Verse 18, notice his attitude. Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense, which was to get back at him, or for some other motive, or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So Paul even found cause for rejoicing when the gospel was preached, even by those who didn't do it sincerely, and by those who did it to cause problems for him. That really ought to be our attitude. In fact, I know right now at this moment, there are two gentlemen that I tried to get to step out of their comfort zone and share the gospel for years. I tried to invite them to be a part of international mission trip opportunities for years. Those gentlemen did something very wicked to me, claiming the name of Christ. They stabbed me in the back when I was outside the country. They lied and committed fraud. And right now at this moment, those two gentlemen who never would step out of their comfort zone to share the gospel, in the 20 years they knew me, are on a mission trip in Honduras right now, taking a whole bunch of pictures and posting it on the internet to try to get under my skin. You know what my response is? Praise God, people in Honduras are hearing the gospel. That's the right response. Praise God. You know, they never would listen to me and go on a mission trip and share the gospel, but praise God they're doing it now. I'm glad for that. They may not be doing it sincerely. They may be doing it to get back at me or to try to say, we don't need you around and look what we're able to do without you. I could care less. Praise God somebody in Honduras is hearing the gospel. And based on some of the testimony, it sounds like there is some real outreach being done. And it's not just your typical go dig a well mission trip. And you know what? I'm rejoicing because of that. Praise God for that. 
Praise God that the Gospel is preached, no matter who preaches it, if it's the Gospel that is preached. And you know what? There are unsincere hypocrites out there that at certain moments in time declare the Gospel and don't even know they're declaring it and God uses it. Praise God for that. If it's not the Gospel, we don't praise God for that. We aim to silence it and rebuke it. But praise God when the Gospel is preached and people come to Christ. And that's exactly what these members in the throne room of heaven are doing. Praising God and thanking Him for people that come to Christ. That ought to be a measuring stick of where you stand with the Lord. Do you love the Lord enough to praise Him and thank Him when other people receive the salvation that He's been gracious enough to give to you? Does it motivate you enough to share with them? These are things we can think about and Paul gives us the right attitude here. Not to just be thankful when it involves people who are nice to you and do something to you, but to be thankful when it involves people that may even do things that work against you. Man, the book of Revelation really can teach us a lot. It's not just prophecy. It points us back to other lessons that we can apply here in the church age. Back to Revelation chapter 7. Man, I I had said I was going to preach this chapter on one Sunday, and I think we're in like the fourth Sunday now. So we have Gentiles of all nations. We have the praise of others praising God for this multitude, for this revival out of tribulation. And then in verse 13, we have two rhetorical questions that are asked of John in the obvious answer. What's a rhetorical question? It's a question that is asked where the answer is obvious. So the person asking a rhetorical question isn't asking it to get an answer. They ask it to get the person they're they're asking to think about an obvious truth. My wife is the queen of the rhetorical question. She asks me questions that she knows the answer to, and I know the answer to, and I've often said, is this a rhetorical question? Okay? It makes a point, though. It brings something to mind that needs to be brought to mind. And I love my wife and I'm thankful for her. Very much so. The rhetorical questions. Let's look at what's asked here. One of the elders... Who do the elders represent? The church in heaven during the tribulation. One of the elders answered and said unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? You see, the elders were clothed in white. We see this in chapter 4. The elders represent the church because when they praise God, they say, Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Twenty-four people cannot be out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's hundreds of tribes and nations. So obviously they were representative. And the church was there in heaven as indicated by us. The elders, the church, were clothed in white. One of the elders asked John, what are these that are arrayed in white? And where did they come from? That word these is obvious in its use here as referring to something different than what the elder represented. So we have these clothed in white. I mean, it had already been made clear that the elders clothed in white represented the church. So there's this other group of Gentiles What are these which are clothed in white? And where did they come from? Or whence came they? Two questions. What are these? And where did they come from? The answer is obvious based on what John has already seen 
with the Jewish witnesses and this Gentile multitude. And these are rhetorical questions. John in verse 14 said, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are they, not the church, but that came out of great tribulation. They came out of this period we're seeing. Why did they come out? Because they heard the preaching of the Jewish witnesses, put their trust in the Lord, and paid for it with their lives. And now they've been redeemed out and are finding rest in the presence of the Lord. These are the tribulation saints. We've got the church that's raptured out, and then we have a body of believers called the tribulation saints. Okay? Notice the difference. Notice the subtle difference. These tribulation saints are genuine converts. But there's a couple subtle differences between their experience and ours. As Christians, as part of the church, the Bible says that we are clothed in white in the presence of God. God clothes us just like He clothed Adam and Eve with skins of animals in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve went out and made their own clothes. They made fig leaves and that wasn't good enough, so God clothed them. For the church, God clothes the saints in white. It is the righteousness of Christ. And that's why the saints in heaven, the elders in chapter 4, had been clothed in white. The martyrs in chapter 5 of all ages that stood before the throne, or I'm sorry, chapter 6, asking God, when are you going to avenge us? They were given white robes. So we have white robes given by God. Here it's a little bit different. These aren't robes given by God. They're dirty robes that are washed in the blood of the Lamb to make them white. A little bit different. There's a difference between God giving you a robe of white and God allowing you to take your filthy robe and wash it in the blood of the Lamb to make it white. You're talking about the church versus the tribulation saint. That's how we know there's a subtle difference. We know that prior to the rapture, the Holy Spirit lives and indwells believers. But when the rapture comes, according to 2 Thessalonians, the witness of the Spirit will be removed from this earth and there will no longer be any restraint upon evil. The only way the restrainer can be gone is if those whom He indwells are gone. The church is raptured out. The Holy Spirit is taken out of the world in the mode in which He exists now as a comforter and the indweller of believers. That's a restraint upon sin. What happens thereafter in the tribulation? God pours His Spirit out. Just like He does with these witnesses. Joel chapter 2. But the pouring out of the Holy Spirit isn't the same as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at the Old Testament. God poured His Spirit upon men. The Spirit of God came and went on God's people. It'll be the same in the tribulation. God will pour His Spirit out upon these Jews. It'll come and go upon these converts. They'll pay for it with their lives and they'll be saved. But there's a difference, a subtle difference. Salvation message is still the same. Jesus Christ is your only hope. Repent and believe the Gospel. But there are consequences for ignoring the Gospel in this age and finding it in the age of tribulation. You won't have an indwelling Holy Spirit to sustain you. You're not going to escape paying 
for your testimony with your life. We can escape that here today, but not in those days. So we're talking about a different group of people. Genuine converts, for sure. Saved just like we are by repenting and believing the Gospel, but suffering the consequences of that period of time. In that period of time, the Holy Spirit will not be here as a restrainer as He is today. And martyrdom is certain. These are genuine converts who pay for their, with their lives and yet do not recant. These are a different group of Gentiles than the church which is in heaven. These are tribulation saints. Think about the harvest. Jesus talked about the gospel going out in fields white unto harvest. Jesus said the, the fields are white. He talked about the good seed producing good fruit and that fruit being harvested. The church is the harvest of God in this age. But after every harvest, there's more. When they go through and harvest the fields, isn't there fruit that's left behind? The, even the machines today don't get all of it. What do we call that? The gleanings. In the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel were told not to completely harvest their fields, but to purposely leave behind some of the fruit so that the poor of the land can come through and glean that and have something to eat. We see Ruth was doing that in the fields of Boaz, gleaning from the harvest to bring food home for her and Naomi. And God used that to draw her to Boaz and their marriage would eventually give rise to King David a couple generations later. But the tribulation saints, the church is the harvest, the tribulation saints are the gleanings of that harvest. When God takes the church out of here and He opens up hell here on earth to judge the nation of Israel, to wake them up, and to judge the wicked, God's also got a revival in mind. Not at the rapture He gathers in the harvest, and during the tribulation He gathers in the gleanings. That's the difference. Genuinely saved people. Saved the same way we are. One is the great harvest. One is the gleanings. One is the church. One is the tribulation saint. In the Old Testament, in the temple or the tabernacle, you had two types of laborers for the Lord. Who were the ones that administered the sacrifices themselves? The priest. Who were the ones that administered and took care of the tabernacle in the temple? Anybody? The Levites. Come on guys, we talked about that. The priests and the Levites, right? Think of these two groups in that sense. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at how... My Bible's falling apart. I got pieces of Hebrews coming out. I got the binding coming off, but I don't want another Bible. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Look how Peter describes the church. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 9. But you, that is the church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
The church is a royal priesthood. That is the priesthood of the believer. Because of our relationship with God through Christ, we are priests in God's heavenly temple. We are priests, ambassadors for Him here on earth. That's why Jesus Christ hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that He mentions in those letters to the seven churches. Nicolaitanism was this idea that in religion you had the priests and the clerics who were the close ones to God, who spoke for God, and then you had the average second class people who had no right to approach unto God. We see that Nicolaitan heresy. We see that damnable Nicolaitan heresy even today in Roman Catholicism. And Jesus Christ says He hates that. We see it in the halls of seminary academia where these professors are put on a pedestal and it's like we're the ones that understand the Word of God and to know God, you've got to come through us. That Nicolaitan spirit is all throughout the seminaries. Baptist seminaries included. Jesus Christ hates it. Yes, Jesus Christ does hate. We see that in Revelation 2 and 3. He talks about that to two separate churches. But with the church... As described in the Bible, there is no room for that clergy versus laity. You see, every believer is a priest. Every believer can approach unto God because of Jesus and know God through His Word. You don't need a seminary professor that can speak Greek. You don't need me here. You don't need a priest to bring you to the Lord like the religions of the world claim. Every believer is a priest. And you know, that's one of the distinctives of the Baptist faith for which we should be grateful for. Throughout the centuries, the Baptists have stood firm on this truth that every believer is a priest and every believer can come to God and even the common man can be used by God and can be a leader in the church. Praise God for our Baptist forefathers who took a stand for these distinctives. One of which is the priesthood of the believer. But the church is the New Testament priesthood as mentioned here. Now go back to Revelation chapter 7. As we go to the end of the chapter, look at verse 15. These are they which came out of great tribulation, and they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. Who was it that served God day and night in His tabernacle and His temple in the Old Testament? The Levites. The tribulation saints are like the Levites of the Old Testament. They too had a special place. You had the priest and the Levites. And they had special jobs and special places in their ministry and service to God. Same, it's the same with the church and the tribulation saints. Special places. The church is the priesthood of the New Testament. The tribulation saints will be the Levitical or the Levites of the New Testament. Gentiles of all multitudes. Of all, of all nations, great multitudes. So you see the similarities here between the, the priest and the Levites and the New Testament church and the New Testament tribulation saints. The harvest and the gleanings. We're talking about genuine converts. Genuine converts who come to Christ and pay for it with their lives. Look at Revelation 24. It has more to say about this Gentile multitude. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, 
and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the Word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, nor received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So these are people who got saved and refused to receive the mark of the beast. Tribulation saints. Exactly what's talked about in Revelation 7. And what does it say here? It says, number one, they were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Now, I don't know if that means that Antichrist's method of punishment in the tribulation will be the old-time guillotine. You know, death by guillotine is not just death, it's public humiliation. It's humiliation to its nth degree. It's a way to demonstrate complete and total power over someone where they lie there motionless and there's nothing they can do. That's why Muslims behead their victims today. It's seen as a death of complete and utter shame. It seems from this passage that beheading will be a choice means of execution for so-called followers of Jesus during the tribulation. But it says here that these who are beheaded for the witness of Jesus and refuse to receive the mark, that they will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Just like the church. The other people that die in the judgments, they won't live again until after the millennium when they're resurrected to be judged and then cast in eternal hell. So these tribulation saints will pay for it with their heads, off with their heads. They will not receive the mark of the beast, but they will live and reign with Christ a thousand years. They too will have a privileged position in the millennium, just like the church. We have these witnesses sealed. We have them sent forth to proclaim the gospel in very difficult days, and we have a great revival. And that revival produces fruit. That fruit is a Gentile multitude of all nations. They'll pay for it with their lives, the tribulation saints, but yet they will be ushered into the presence of God and they will live and reign with Christ in the millennium for a thousand years. We've answered the question, who are these? That angel asked John, who are these? John says, you know, and the obvious answer is those that have washed their robes. They've come out of great tribulation and they've washed their robes. So we know who these are. I want to end with this today so I can finish the chapter. And we, we did have a little, we got started a little late today, so give me uh, some, just a few minutes here of patience. Who these are, we've answered that. But there's another question we've got to answer. Who these are not. We know who they are. We also know who they're not. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is talking about the days when the man of sin, the son of perdition, rules over the earth. The days when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is taken from the earth. He's talking about the days of tribulation. Look at chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth, that word let, means to restrain. He who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That's the Holy Spirit. Iniquity works, but it's restrained until he be taken out of the way. Then, 
That is, after the Holy Spirit is taken out, when the church is removed, the Holy Spirit is gone in the sense that He exists today. Then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. Even Him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Okay? This is Antichrist. And look at verse 10, "...and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them, that is, those that refuse to receive it when it was given them prior to the rise of Antichrist, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie." that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So who are these Gentile multitude not? They're not those who clearly heard the gospel and were confronted with the truth in the church age. Because God says here that those who refuse to receive the truth, if you refuse to receive it, you must have heard it clearly. That God's going to send a spirit of delusion to cause you to believe a lie so that you will be damned. So if you know people here in this society, well maybe you yourself are banking on the fact, well you know maybe I'm not saved, I'm not really too worried about the rapture because if it happens then I'll believe, then I'll get right with God. Uh Uh-uh. Not according to God. Those that clearly have heard the gospel today can't bank on that because the Bible says God will send a lying spirit that they might be deceived and damned. But my friends, there are Gentiles all over this world. They may have heard the name of Jesus. Maybe they saw a track sometime, but they've never clearly been confronted with the gospel because it's not out there like it is here in America. It is these that will wake up and come to the truth. Not those sitting here in America. I wonder how many... It'll be Gentiles of all nations. That includes this country. But I imagine those from this place during the tribulation will be few in number compared to places where the gospel has hardly been spoken in this lifetime. And we do know that it is the Jewish remnant that will complete Matthew 24:14. So places where the gospel is not gone today, and yes, they exist. There are even places in America today in this generation where people, there are people who have never clearly heard the gospel. I talked to a man in a dentist chair one time, or an eye doctor's chair one time, in Newton, North Carolina, that had never ever heard the gospel. Never heard it before. He heard the name Jesus, but he didn't know the gospel message of the cross and salvation and repentance and, and faith in God. A lot of people in their churches every Sunday in America have never heard the gospel because their preacher never preaches it. He knows it, but he's too afraid to preach it. But those who know and have been confronted and know better will not be saved in the tribulation they will be deceived. So these Gentile converts are not people that have heard the Gospel clearly in this church age. Does that make sense? Perhaps you have a hard time reconciling in your mind that a good God, a truthful God, a righteous God, would send delusion and cause people to believe a lie. Well, number one, God is righteous. That's His character. And whatever God does is righteous. And by faith, we believe that based on the testimony of the Word of God. But this isn't the first time God has sent out a lying prophet to deceive people whose hearts never were really 
bent towards seeking God. I'll end with this. I can't help but share this story from 2 Chronicles chapter 18. And this just kind of gives a picture of what's going to happen during the tribulation with those who ought to know better, but they're left behind. 2 Chronicles chapter 18, I'll give you the, little, the context here for the sake of time. King Jehoshaphat, the righteous God-fearing king of the southern kingdom of Judah, began to pal around and buddy up with Ahab, the wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Ahab's the one that married Jezebel, that raised up an idol to worship, that brought Baal worship into the northern kingdom. He was the son of Omri, the one who built Samaria. And we know that Ephraim's not listed with the tribes in Revelation 7. And we talked about how all that inquired together. But toward the end of Ahab's life, he decided he wanted to invade Syria and go up against the Syrians and capture Ramoth-Gilead on the border. And he invited King Jehoshaphat to join him and contribute his armies to the effort. King Jehoshaphat was a righteous king, but he had piled around with King Ahab and decided, okay, I'll come and help you out. In verse 4 of chapter 18, Jehoshaphat said first, but before we do, he said to the king of Israel, can we at least inquire of the Lord to make sure this is what we are supposed to do? So Jehoshaphat in his faith did say, before we go, I'm willing to go, but let's at least ask the Lord. That's really not what Ahab wanted to do. But in verse 5, Therefore the king of Israel gathered together prophets, 400 men, and said unto them, Shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? Should we wait? And they said, Go up, for God will deliver it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat, who shouldn't have been palling around with Ahab, had enough sense to recognize, I'm not sure we can trust these words from these prophets. And so in verse 6 he says, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord? Somebody else that we might inquire of also? Look what Ahab says. The king of, Ahab, the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is one man by whom you may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good unto me but always evil. Man, doesn't that sound familiar with what we hear here in America today? But his name is Micaiah, the son of Imla. And Jehoshaphat said, don't let the king say so. So the king of Israel called for one of his officers and said, fetch quickly Micaiah, the son of Imla. And so, the two kings got together on their thrones to make inquiry about whether they should go up to battle in Syria. And as you're going down through verses 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, we hear about this Zedekiah, this other prophet that comes forth. And he made horns of iron. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, with these horns you're going to push out the king of Syria and have victory. And all these other prophets came and said, Go up. God's going to bless you. God's told us you're going to be victorious. And finally, when this Micaiah came around, in verse 12, it says, uh, he's, they, they fetch this prophet and they, they go to call him and they say to him, now look, behold the words of the prophets, they declare good to the king with one assent. In other words, everybody's speaking blessing and they're agreeing. Let thy word therefore, I pray thee, be just like theirs and don't only speak good. So they're buttering him up and saying, look, everybody else is saying, go ahead and go forth and be blessed and you need to say something that would agree with this. Look what Micaiah says in verse 13. 
as the Lord liveth, even what my God saith, that will I speak. I'll speak, but I'm going to speak what God says. And when he was come to the king, the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And Micaiah, he said, go up and prosper, and they shall be delivered into your hand. Fine, go up and do it. Just go. That's what you want to do. Do it. The king said to him, now look, this is Ahab who doesn't want to hear evil. He only wants to hear good. And this shows how confused the ungodly can be. The king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou say nothing but the truth to me in the name of the Lord? So this prophet told him what he wanted to hear, and that wicked king knew it wasn't right. He's so confused. Then he said, this is the prophet, I did see all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I not tell you that he would not prophesy good unto me but evil? Again he said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon His throne and all the host of heaven standing on His right hand on His left. And the Lord said, Who shall entice Ahab king of Israel that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one spake, saying after this manner and another after that manner, then there came out a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, Thou shalt then entice him and thou shalt go, prevail, go out and do even so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of these thy prophets and the Lord hath spoken evil against thee. And as he spoke these things, Zedekiah, that other prophet, came up and smacked him in the mouth and said, Tell us, prophet, which way did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to you? And they mocked him. And then they told the governor, the king got so angry, he told Micaiah to throw, he said to throw Micaiah in prison. Put this fellow in the prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and with the water of affliction until I return in peace. In verse 27, Micaiah said, If you return in peace, then the Lord hasn't spoken by me. And then the last thing that the prophet said as he was led off to prison is, Hey people, listen. As we go on to read, the two kings go up to battle at Ramoth-Gilead. Jehoshaphat, the righteous king, goes forth in all his royal attire. So it's obvious in battle that he is a king. Ahab, however, disguises himself. He doesn't go out as a king. He dresses as a soldier and he's in a chariot. The Syrians see King Jehoshaphat, the righteous king, and they go to kill him. And then they realize, this is not the king of Israel, this is some other king. And so, Jehoshaphat escapes. Wicked King Ahab, who's trying to disguise himself and prevent himself from getting killed, a man shoots an arrow, and that arrow just falls out of the sky and hits Ahab right between the creases of the armor, and it kills him. So Ahab dies in this battle, and it says that the blood, the dogs licked his blood up out of the chariot, just like what Elijah prophesied to Ahab years before. And so Ahab perished. But God, in this instance, sent forth a lying spirit to speak in the mouths of his prophets so that the prophets would deceive King Ahab and deceive the people. And then God had his way and had great victory. You know, I can't finish this story without looking at the first two verses of chapter 19 because Jehoshaphat was faithful. Jehoshaphat was a, was a king that worshipped God and led his people to do so. 
Jehoshaphat survived this battle, but Jehoshaphat needed to be rebuked in a way that many of us today should be rebuked, in a way that the church should be rebuked. Look at chapter 19. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace in Jerusalem. And then Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, another prophet, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. In other words, Jehoshaphat was rebuked for palling around with that wicked king Ahab. Whether it was for political purposes or family purposes. You know, we know that Jehoshaphat's son married the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And that created problems in Judah. That's why three kings aren't mentioned in the genealogies of the book of Matthew when it talks about Jesus because the bloodlines got mixed. And here, the man of God is rebuked for palling around with the ungodly and loving on those that hate the Lord. Now isn't that what the church does today? Palling around with the world. Let's affirm homosexual marriage. Let's just pal around and love everybody. Even those that hate the Lord. God rebuked a righteous king in the Old Testament for that. May we be rebuked for helping the ungodly, loving on those that hate the Lord, and yet not having genuine love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's shameful. I know that's another topic. But again, God, for His purposes in this story, sent out a lying spirit to deceive. To deceive that those people would receive the just reward of their rebellion. And through that deceptive lying spirit, Ahab met his maker. Ahab answered for his crimes. And the prophecy of Elijah was fulfilled. The same in the tribulation. God will send a spirit of delusion. And many that seem like they would easily believe today will not believe in those days. Many people that wake up, whether it's two men in the field or a man and wife asleep in bed and they wake up and find the other gone. And you'd think their eyes would be open and they would realize they've been left behind and they'll flee and turn to Christ. Uh-uh. Delusion. Has anybody seen those old Thief in the Night movies that came in the 1970s? It kind of follows the life of this girl. She marries this guy, he gets saved and he's raptured. And she wakes up one morning and he's gone. And then she knows based on the truth she's heard all along what this is. And it follows her through, I think, I don't remember how many movies it was, maybe four. But it follows her life during tribulation. And she never quite comes to the point where she'll give her life to Christ. And I believe at the very end, she's in line getting ready to lose her life or something you know, the, the Antichrist government has, has uh, rounded up these people and are beheading them. Until the very end, she knows she's not right with God and she's headed toward the guillotine. I don't remember exactly what happens, but she ends up dying and never made her life right with Christ because she always had an excuse, always had a delusion. And that's a perfect picture in those movies about what is taking place here. So we've talked about Jewish witnesses, Gentile converts, tribulation saints, who they are, who they are not. And these ought to be sobering truths for us as we ponder the day and time in which we live.
Look at the world. Look at what ha what's happening to Israel. Look at the great falling away in the American church. We are at the doors. It is close. May we be those who are not left behind. And may we be those that continue to preach and lay the groundwork and plant the seeds for the revival that is to come. One thing that Ricky and I have talked about, and Dylan is where Dylan's going to be here next weekend with us. He's going to be sharing with you guys here at church about their ministry to Jewish people in South America. But one thing we've often talked about as we've gone out to seek out these young Israelis that have gotten out of the army who are traveling the earth, and we share the truths of Christ, and they seem open, and they seem to be hearing things they've never heard before. And we're showing them from the Scriptures. And we're giving them copies of the Bible. We see this openness. And yes, we want them to come to Christ in those moments. We want them to come in and be a part of the church. And we don't see that very often, but we're not discouraged. We're not discouraged because we know God's got a Jewish remnant He's going to raise up in the tribulation. And it gives us great joy to be planting seeds now that may very well sprout once the church is gone. Maybe some of these young people that Ricky has spoken into their lives are going to be those that God seals out of the 144,000 of Israel who go forth and preach the Gospel to all Gentiles. Maybe they're going to get a seed from Gentiles today who are going into all the world like Ricky and Dylan that's going to sprout so that they in tribulation will turn around and do the same thing for Gentiles. Isn't it amazing how God works? And so that fact alone ought to spur us to be a witness to the, Jewish, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Even if they don't hear it, you don't know what God's doing. And God is opening the eyes of Israelis and Jewish people around the world. There is a sensitivity to the things of God on a larger scale than has been in a very long time. From both religious Jews and secular Jews, God's doing something. He's preparing the ground for these things to happen. And we can be a part of it. We can be a part of Revelation chapter 7 by preaching the Gospel, sowing seeds of the Gospel, sending out missionaries, supporting them, and doing the very thing that I hope the team from this church is going to do in Bangladesh in October. We can be a direct part of Revelation chapter 7. And that's an incredible and amazing thing. Next, we're going to get into chapter 8 and we're going to talk about the opening of the seventh seal and the trumpet judgments. This is when the judgments get especially nasty and they resemble very much like what God poured out upon the nation of Egypt during the plagues. What God did to Egypt in the book of Exodus is coming to the entire planet. I'm sorry we're a little slow this morning, but I think those other things were important to share and I definitely wanted to finish the chapter.